Typically, before we go to prayer, we do our catechism. I'm not going to go through the catechism today. I want to read to you something just to kind of prime your thinking about the Reformation, what it was and who Martin Luther was. We're going to be talking about those things during the message this morning. But I want to just read something that is actually an excerpt from, uh, it's, it's in a CD that was put together. It's called Glory to the Holy One. This was put together by R.C. Sproul and a man named Jeff Lippincott. Um, interestingly, Jeff isn't here this morning, but Jeff attends this church. He, um, he bought a home up in Alpine and uh, is with us almost every Sunday, but they're down in Scottsdale now. So I asked him this week if I could read from his little excerpt uh, this morning. He said that would be just fine. But R.C. wrote this, and it was a part of this orchestral cantata that they did at St. Andrews down there in Florida. And it's just a succinct statement, and I think it's very good, having to do with some of the things that were going on in the world and in the church at the time of the Reformation. So this is what R.C. says. One hammer in the hand of an obscure Augustinian monk changed the world forever. Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany calling his fellow professors to examine issues of supreme theological importance. Thus began the Reformation, through which the light of God's Word was brought out of the darkness to shine with clarity once more. One of the central cries of the Protestant Reformation was this, The just shall live by faith. Luther's development of the doctrine of justification by faith alone recovered the gospel that had been hidden during the Middle Ages. And at the center of that gospel is the affirmation that the righteousness by which we are declared just before a holy God is not our own. It is a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that Luther said is extra nos, apart from us. Namely, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that righteousness that's imputed or counted for all who put their trust in him. Because of that affirmation, Luther was involved in serious controversies. Controversies that culminated in his being brought to trial before the princes of the church and even before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. And there at the Diet of Worms, summoned in Germany, Luther was called upon to recant his views. He answered his accusers by saying, Rivaco? You want me to say Rivaco? That I recant? 
I will not recant unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason. I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. In every generation, the gospel must be published anew with that same boldness and that same clarity and the same urgency that came forth in the 16th century Reformation. I wanted you to think about that as we, as we went to prayer this morning and just to lay in our thinking some of the thoughts about who this man Martin Luther was and what he did. And when we come back together in, the, in a few minutes after we've sung, after we've read the scripture this morning, we'll study some things about his life and we'll think about what God did through this man, this obscure Augustinian monk who really faced on the world. And so as we go to prayer this morning, let's ask the Lord would bless our time, that the Lord would bless the gospel as it goes forth not only in this pulpit, but all across the world. And uh, let's just unite our hearts together, and then we'll continue with scripture reading and come to the Lord in worship and song and with our offerings, and uh, then we'll return and study today. Lord, we come before you, and we're grateful for the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, men of faith, who have gone before us. Men and women who were willing to count the cost, lay everything on the line for what they knew was of supreme value and worth, and that was you and your gospel and the truth. Father, help us in this generation in which we live to have that same urgency that same clarity, and that same conviction. Father, those were dark days in which Martin Luther lived, and so were the days in which we live. And yet your spirit is not bound. It is not by might, it is not by power, it is by your spirit, saith the Lord. And so, Lord, we look to you to add to your church as your gospel is preached not only here but around the world. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture text is is, uh, Galatians 3. 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you 
and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith.
that are recovered as a result of what Martin Luther does and then subsequent church leaders do over the next hundred years are all embedded in this text. The five solas that we will think of as we get further in this message. Those five solas which deal with Scripture alone is the church's authority. Not popes, not councils, not tradition. Scripture alone. Faith alone. It is by faith alone that we are saved through grace alone, and those two things flow to us by, as we sang, Christ alone. It's Christ and his merit. And because of that, all the glory goes to God alone. That's what the Reformation is all about. And I want you to notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verse 11, therefore remember, remember, that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, you were unsaved, you were outside the covenants that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were a stranger to all the covenants of promise. And at that time you had no hope because you were without God in the world. 
But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And thus he made peace, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And it's in him that the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, I thank you that we have access to you in one spirit by the blood of Christ. We need no other mediator. We don't need earthly priests. We are reconciled to you on the merit of your life and your death and your resurrection. And it is in Christ and him alone that by faith through grace we are saved. It is not of ourselves, it is a gift. Father, I thank you. Lord, as we consider this man who from a place of obscurity you raised up and brought into the limelight time as we consider his life. Help us, Father, to renew our dedication to be committed to this same gospel, whatever the cost. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. To the world, this day is Halloween. To us, it is Reformation Day. To the world, this day is a day of darkness and of death, of ghosts and goblins. To us, this is a day of light and life. This is a day when a young Augustinian monk was used by God to light fires of revival and reformation that had not been seen 
since the first century. And it was not by his rebellion. It was not a rebellion. Rather, it was by his conviction. It was a conviction that was centered on truth. The truth of God's word. My first introduction to this man, Martin Luther, was when I was, in a, when I was a child. I remember watching, did you watch the old black and white film of the life of Martin Luther? That was my first introduction to him. Kind of packed him away in my mind and put him in a compartment and thought of him no more. Until one weekend in 1994, we were staying up in the Sunlight Basin. My wife, Amy, her parents had a cabin or home actually up in the Sunlight Basin where he was an outfitter. And we were staying up there over the Christmas holiday. And on that holiday, I immersed myself in two books. One was a biography of Martin Luther. I just happened to see it on the shelf. I hadn't read his life. I thought it might be a good read. I pulled it and took it with me. And my mind was affixed by it. At the same time, I was reading another book, new release by a guy named John MacArthur, a book called Ashamed of the Gospel. I read those two books parallel that week, and it transformed my thinking. It was a transformative weekend in my life that I'll always remember. Who was this guy? From his pen and from his mouth, the continent of Europe was swept into convulsions. The English Reformation, Scotland, eventually America. What was the Reformation? What caused it? You know, I think in our day and age, many people look at these things as triviality. What was all this arguing over? Let's think about what was the cause of the Reformation? Theologians and historians think of the Protestant Reformation, and they're going to separate two issues when it comes to its cause. One, they're going to call the material cause. The issue at hand. The issue that lights the fire. The other is the cause behind the scenes that is at the foundation of it all, the formal cause. The one, the material cause, the issue at hand is the doctrine of justification by grace, through faith alone. The formal cause is deeper. It has to do with authority. The doctrine of sola scriptura. That's a Latin phrase. It means scripture alone. Now, what does this mean? Let's think about some things here as we begin. The immediate crisis 
that Luther addresses in his 95 theses, and I'm going to give you some of the theses in a little bit time. The immediate issue that he is dealing with is an issue called indulgences. What is an indulgence? At the time, the Catholic Church is on the rocks. They are in trouble financially. And yet the Pope wants to build in Rome a new basilica. At that time, you didn't just go and build without money at hand. You had to raise money. It's not like our government today that just raises the debt limit and does whatever they want to do. You know, if you got the money, honey. Well, you didn't have the money. How did you get the money? They sell indulgences. Now, what is an indulgence? In the Roman Catholic doctrine, I want us to think of something we're going to call merit. And in their doctrine, they believe that like in heaven, there is a treasure chest of merit. And on earth, we are drawing from that merit. We can do so, and, and in that treasure chest is the merit of Christ. But not just the merit of Christ, there is also the merit of the saints. There is the merit of the relics. There's the merit that comes from pilgrimages. So you go to Rome. And by tapping into that merit, you gain access to God. Now, how do you tap into that merit? One of the ways you did so was by purchasing an indulgence. The best way I know to explain it is this. It's like a get-out-of-purgatory pass. Okay? So we have indulgences here, we have purgatory, and then we have people purchasing an indulgence with their money thinking, and whoever's name you put on the indulgence is whoever it applies to, that the merit of this indulgence can get my dead Uncle Harry out of purgatory a hundred years quicker. There was a guy named Tetzel who was a preacher of indulgences, and he traveled through Germany raising money. And you talk about putting people on a guilt trip? Dead Uncle Harry is burning in the fires of purgatory. And he knows you're alive. He knows you have money. And for your money, you can get a reprieve for dead Uncle Harry and get him out of purgatory. And he played to it that way, and he played to it very powerfully. And Luther sees this happening, and Luther says, this is from the pit of hell. Amen. It is important to know that at this time in Luther's life, he is not arguing that indulgences are bad. At this time in his life, he's not even arguing that there is no purgatory. He's simply saying, if you want to get an indulgence, you shouldn't have to buy it. That's all he's saying. 
his theology is developing. Now, how does this work? Let's think about something here. How are we saved? I put two words up there that are very important you understand. These words are argued about all the time by theologians, synergism and monergism. Synergism views salvation like a cooperative effort. You do your best, God will make up the rest. That's why it's synergy, putting something together. It's a theological belief system that says, basically, you do your best. You know, I I know you can't pay the fare. You don't got enough money to go on the flight. But you put in what you have, and I'll make up the rest. Synergism. Two working together in a cooperative effort so that you get to go to heaven. Most religions, most naturally, that's what we believe. If I just do my best, God's going to smile on it. He's going to make up the rest. That's why Jesus died. It's not the truth. We sang it this morning. Salvation belongs to our God. Jonah recognized this when he was plucked out of the belly of a whale. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah couldn't do nothing to get that whale to puke him out on the beach. He's a dead man. I don't care if he's hanging on the whale's uvula. Open your mouth and puke me out. What happens if he pukes him out in the middle of the water? He's still dead. Jonah has no salvation except God and God alone. God completely intervenes to save him. You cannot save yourself. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. This is the whole argument that comes down in the Reformation. Can you buy it? Can you go to Mass? Can you do this? Can you do that? This is what Luther ends up arguing. How are we saved? Not by anything that we contribute. There is nothing you contribute. It is God who plucks you from the belly of the whale. He does so by faith. Now, in the Catholic Church, they are viewing their authority like a three-legged stool. These are four-legged. But you know what a three-legged stool would look like, right? You take one leg of that stool out, it ain't going to stand. It's going to fall over. In the Roman Catholic faith, they believe there are three legs to the authority of the church. One is scripture. The other is the magisterium, which is the teaching office of the church. That's the ability of the church to interpret the scripture and tell you what it means. The third one is the pope. Those three entities working together tell you how to do things and what God demands. That's how the Catholics understand it. If you want to understand Catholicism, by the way, I'll give you a title of a book that you ought to read. It's called, Why Do Catholics Do That? It's written by a Catholic monk or a priest, priest, and uh, it's written explaining Catholic teaching and practice. Think of the title for a minute. The title itself is very intriguing. Why do Catholics 
do that. If Martin Luther wrote a book, he probably would have written it with his title. He did write books. But if he wrote a book to counter that one, he would have wrote this book. Why do Protestants believe that? Think about the difference in the title. Why do Catholics do that? Because it's all about doing. It's all about works. Versus, what do we believe? What do you believe? So this is how they view authority. Whereas in Protestantism, of which we are the heir, we believe in Scripture alone. Where has God spoken in this book? And then, how do I know what God means by what he said? And this comes down to hermeneutics and interpretation. And this is, I think, where we get back to original intent. People still argue this. How do you know what some, somebody meant when they wrote it? You know, how do you know what the founders meant when they wrote the Second Amendment? How do you know what they meant? And so people argue about that. What did it mean? Well, look at original intent. What did it mean to the people to whom it came? And that's how we interpret Scripture. Literally, historically, thinking of what God said by what he means. And so this comes down to us as very important in our thinking. Who was Luther? Let's do a quick trip through his life. Okay? Let's think about who this guy is. Martin Luther. He was born in 1483 in a place called Saxony in Germany on November the 10th. In 1505, on July the 5th, 1505, he is caught outside in a massive thunderstorm and lightning is striking everywhere around him. Have you ever been out in one of them storms? I mean, that is a scary thing, isn't it? He is petrified. His fear is exacerbated by his teaching, by what he's been taught, about the wrath of God. He is scared to death to die. He is almost killed by a striking thunderbolt, and as that bolt strikes a tree, he takes an oath to God and says, God, if you let me live, I will become a monk. His dad is ticked off. He was destined to be an attorney. Nevertheless, he took the vow. He goes into the Augustinian uh, monastery as a monk. In 1511, after having been ordained, he is sent to a place called Wittenberg. And there he is at the castle church. He has a doctor of theology and he is teaching. From 1511 to 1517, when he nails the 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, he is teaching on the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews, and the Psalms. And as he is teaching the scripture, he is coming to terms with God. And then we have the controversy with indulgences. And in 1517, he nails 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, the castle church. Because of what he says in them, 
He is summoned to appear in Rome. His protector, a man named Frederick the Wise, and he was wise, says to him, if I send my little monk to Rome, they will burn him. And he says, no. He works out a deal with Charles V to protect him, and he appears instead on German soil in Augsburg. From that, he is excommunicated in 1521, and he is summoned to appear at a place called Worms. And there he is told either recant, or you're on your way to hell. He, of course, says, Ravaco, I can't. My, my conscience is bound by the word of God. He is spirited away by his friends. They know he is going to be killed. So they spirit him away at night. They take him to the Wartburg Castle, and there they hide him for two years. After that, he marries a woman named Katerina von Bora, who was once a nun. She escaped with 12 other nuns from the convent at Nimsky by hiding in a barrel of herring fish. Imagine how they smelled when they got out of the barrels. He marries her. You have the Peasants' War, you have reforms, you have writing of books and hymns and translating until he dies in 1546 on February the 18th, and he is buried under the pulpit in the castle church in Wittenberg. That would be a weird thing to be preaching, knowing somebody was buried underneath you. Now I want to consider two events, and then we're going to bring it together. The two events in his life I want us to think about is, first of all, the 95 Theses. And then I want to think about the Diet of Worms, and then we'll bring it together with some application. I think I can get it all in. What are the 95 Theses? Have you ever read them? I did. I sat down several times in my life, but I read them again this week. Sat down for about an hour and read through them all, and I was bored to tears. In fact, most of the things I read about didn't mean anything to me. They're not even issues that are on my radar. He starts out talking about repentance, and it gets good, and then it gets really boring, and then it gets good again. He really goes to blow with the Pope in the middle. That's what got him into a lot of trouble. What are the 95 Theses all about? Like I said, it's about indulgences. It's about purgatory. Here's some of the things he says. Number 27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. You know, they preach only human doctrines who say the same today on TBN and other places on the TV. Send your money to God, I'll send you a hanky, you rub your head and you're good to go. You're healed of all your rheumatism. It's baloney. It's baloney. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks in the money chest, the soul is released from purgatory. Next, here's another one, 28. It is certain that when money clinks in the money chest, avarice and greed can be increased. But when the church intercedes, the result is in the hands of God alone. Here's another one he says. Christians are to be taught... 
that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. Christians are to be taught this. Christian, you're to be taught this. In the eyes of God, it is better for you to give your money to alleviate suffering than it is to build a big building for a megachurch. It is. Here's another one. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man on the corner by McDonald's at Pocatello, all the time I see him there. And I pass him by. Yet he gives his money for an indulgence. He doesn't buy papal indulgences. He buys what? God's anger. Here's another one. Christians are to be taught. Now, Now get this one. Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they should reserve the money for their family's needs and by no means squander it on an indulgence. What is he saying there? Don't take your money and give it to the church when you can't feed your kid. Don't think that that sacrifice somehow buys God's merit. Don't think that. Christian, learn that today. Don't think that by putting money in that offering plate, you somehow buy God's merit by your sacrifice when you're not taking care of your family the way you should. Take care of your family first. That's what God demands. Christians are to be taught that. That's in the, that's in the 95. Here's 49. Christians are to be taught that papal indulgences are useful only if they do not put their trust in them. But they are very harmful if they lose their fear of God because of that. Those are in the 95 Theses. What are they about? They're teaching Christians something. They have something to teach us today. You know why? Because we get exploited. We get exploited and put on guilt trips by people who are church and Christian leaders of evangelicalism who would exploit you. And they do so for their own gain. Don't fall for it. So this is relevant. Question is, why did he post the 95 theses on October 31st? Was it just because he wrote them on October 30th and he decided now's a good day to put them up there? No, he did it intentionally. He did it on October 31st for a very specific reason. Here's what it is. The church calendar of his day, there is a day called All Saints Day. All Saints Day is November the 1st. On All Saints Day, Frederick the Wise is going to do something inside the castle church where he nails the 95 Theses. Inside the church, he is going to put on display over 5,000 relics 
on that day. And people from the whole region are going to come to look at them. Because they're going to think that by looking at this, here is one of the nails that Jesus was nailed to the cross by. Here's a little vial, and in this little vial is some of the milk of Mary. Here's the head of Judas. Here's this, here's that. All these different things. 5,000 so-called relics. And if I can come and I can go in that church and I can look at those relics on a pilgrimage, I'm going to gain some merit. And maybe I'll get some absolution for my sin. On November 1st, people from the entire region of Germany are coming to that church to see those relics. The day before, on the door, 95 theses. Now, why does he put them on the door? It's not vandalism. Everybody did it. The door of the church was like the bulletin board. If you were going to have a wedding, you put your notice on the door. You just did, and then everybody goes in the door, everybody sees it. He nails them on the door so when people go in, they will see this. They will read it. What he is wanting to do is open a debate. The debate never happens. Not formally, but very informally, it sweeps across Europe because these things are revolutionary to them. Now, October 31st is what? All Hallows' Eve. It's the day to remember the dead. You know, All Saints' Day, that's also a heretical thing, if you think about it. What you're doing is you're celebrating those that the church has recognized were in heaven. They've gotten out of purgatory. What does the Bible say? If you're in Christ, you are a what? Saint. We don't have to wait a thousand years to find out if you are. You're a saint. So you had October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, and then you had All Saints' Day on November the 1st, that's why he chose that day. He does so very specifically. He addresses indulgences. He, address, he addresses purgatory in a limited sense. But the core of what he is addressing is where does salvation come from? How are you saved? Can you contribute anything? Or is it by faith alone? Now, Bringing it together, what is the takeaways? I'm going to skip over Worms, his famous statement there. It is so important, but we're not going to take the time with it because I don't got the time. But think about his statement at another time, what he says there when he's asked to recant. And he says, Ravaco, what? I can't go against my conscience. I cannot go against the scripture. And he takes his, his stand on Scripture alone. Here I stand, I can do no other. He knows it could cost his life. So what can we learn from this? What are the things that we can take away? First thing that I would have you think about as we think about a takeaway is what made it possible. You know what made it possible? Movable print. A technological advance. You know what happened to every other reformer up until Luther? 
The Roman Catholics hid him away and then they burned him. You know why Luther succeeded? Because somebody took those 95 theses off the church door and they went to the printer and they were mass reproduced and everybody read them. And then Rome could not touch him. It was technology that saved the day. God used that in his sovereign hand. That was the difference. Now, second thing that I would have you think about is, you know, what was at stake? Well, the gospel's at stake. We talked about the five solas. We won't go any deeper there. What is its fruit? What is the fruit of the Reformation? Well, you are, I guess I'd say, right? The gospel is recovered. In that, there are some takeaways that we can learn about Reformation and revival that are fruits of this that I think we should learn. Here's one. I did a lot of thinking about this because I heard a lot of heresy on this one when I was a kid. It's about revival. God does not send revival because of anything we do, just like you can't get saved because of anything you do. You know when God sends reformation and revival? When he wants to. You can't make it happen. I can't make it happen. We can't manipulate that. It's God. That is a takeaway. God does not send reformation because his church deserves it. I don't think if we all locked ourselves away for a month and fasted, it would be a good thing. Some of us would lose some weight. And we prayed, that would be a good thing. And we undoubtedly would see some real changes in our lives. We would get the victory over some sin, undoubtedly. We would see God save people. But what we did by just saying we're going to do this is not going to cause God to send revival. You can't schedule revival. When I was a kid, I remember that. We're going to have a revival on October the 31st. We're going to have a week-long revival. No, you're not. You're only going to have a revival if God sends it. God sent it. Here's another takeaway. God raises up imperfect men and he gives them holy boldness and courage. They're imperfect men. It is so amazing to me to read all the revisionist history about everybody today. Thomas Jefferson on down to everybody, Martin, everybody. And they were all very imperfect men. But you don't have to be perfect for God to use you to do good things. Another takeaway. What starts in obscurity can spread and revolutionize the world in human history. God usually starts in small places. He did with Martin Luther. Primarily the takeaway is this. It teaches us to hope. Those are dark days. And God stepped into human history and changed the world. And he can do it again. Here's my closing conclusion. I just finished a great book. 
Robert Massey wrote a book on the life of Peter the Great. It's a huge book. It took me forever to get through it, but it was a great read. I brought some different illustrations from it. I didn't know nothing about this guy. He was a very devout man. He was Russian Orthodox. Peter the Great would go to church with great devotion. When he would show up at a church in Russia, he would always join the choir. He loved to sing. He would sit in the seat. One of the bad things in the Russian church at the time was everybody was talking during the service. It just was like what everybody did because they were bored, I guess. I hope you're not today. But everybody did. They just talked. It made Peter the Great so mad. And he would take his scepter and he would walk the aisles of the church. And if somebody was talking out of turn, he would thump them on the head. He was a very devout man, but he was a product of his time. He was very imperfect. He did some things. He was like, wow. He's 52. He's having persistent urinary tract infections. His urethra becomes so stopped up, risking a little bit of TMI here, he just can't go. And nobody can help him. They've tried everything. 52, and he's dying. He's in excruciating pain. He calls for his priest to come to him, as he would do routinely, that he could confess to him. He calls his priest to come to him, to ask for absolution and to perform the last rites. And as he is dying, this is what Peter the Great says. As he is dying, he says, Lord, I believe. I hope. Lord, I believe. I hope. I hope. Now listen to this statement. This is his prayer, and it reveals everything. I hope, God, you will forgive me my many sins because of the good I have tried to do for my people. lapses under unconsciousness, he dies. Lord, I believe. I hope, God, you will forgive me my many sins because of my good, of the good that I have tried to do for my people. My friend, do not pray that prayer on your deathbed. On your deathbed, pray this prayer. Lord, I believe. I thank you that you have forgiven me not for any good that I have done, but because of Christ alone and my faith and trust in him. When you get on your deathbed and you are praying that final prayer, what you are trusting in will come out of your heart. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Peter the Great was not trusting in Jesus. He was trusting in the good he thought he did. I hope he got there. I hope that somehow what he said in his prayer wasn't what was really in his heart. But what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Justification is by grace, through faith alone, based on what Christ has done, not any good in you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, Lord, you have not left it up to our paltry efforts to secure us a place in your kingdom. You died that we might live. And your merit is all we need. Lord, I believe. And I pray that those in this room who hear the gospel this morning can say the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing a closing song together?
thank you for the, the word which was spoken today, for the truth of this man who, who stood and was courageous. May we too be courageous, Lord, as we go forth and share the gospel with those around us. We love you and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.